From Creation Ministries International, you're listening to Creation.com's article podcast, the research and insights that give God glory, refute evolution, and give you the answers to defend your faith. Bible Project has become increasingly popular in recent years. While the production value of their resources is high, we believe that there are some concerns that need to be addressed. What some perceive as minor differences among believers on Genesis has far-reaching implications. The project uses colorful and engaging videos, along with powerful and thought-provoking visuals. This format with insightful and concise teaching makes Bible Project a very exciting resource for Christians that can be passed on easily to fellow believers or lost friends and family. Especially in a time of seemingly increasing biblical illiteracy, this should be a breath of fresh air. They have produced a video overview for every book in the Bible that culminates in a beautiful tapestry of the book in picture form. There are even videos on biblical concepts, Hebrew and Greek word studies, and commentaries. The idea is that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. The series of videos they produce captures key themes and motifs and shows just how connected the stories are. In this regard, the project is excellent. But aside from the glossy appeal, Christians should ask some hard questions and look beneath the surface, such as what specifics are being taught? Is there anything not being said? How are we to take these stories and did they really happen? Or are they just pointing to a spiritual truth? What does Bible Project believe as a ministry? What kind of resources are their studies pulling from? Unfortunately, after a closer look, the color, cleverness, and theological novelty start to wear off. A good place to start with any ministry is their statement of faith. By nailing one's colors to the mast, it helps believers understand where a ministry is coming from. Bible Project has no real statement of faith, though, and that is very troubling. As with any Bible teaching, believers should test the spirits and discern for themselves. 1 John 4.1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. If there isn't sufficient information on a statement of faith, what is taught about Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 11, can be a very effective litmus test. In our experience, if a church or ministry abandons basic traditional doctrines, one will also find that they don't take Genesis as real history. Genesis is, of course, the seedbed of all Christian doctrine. That being said, it comes as no surprise that their second most popular video is on Genesis 1 through 11. In fact, you can find two videos on Genesis 1 through 11. Except for minor errors, these videos have little to disagree or contend with. Anything that could be taken issue with can be explained away as a creative choice of wording given that they cover 11 chapters in under 8 and 7 minutes respectively. However, Bible Project has podcasts that dig deeper into the subject matter of their videos. A visual commentary on Genesis 1 also paints a different picture to a straightforward understanding of the text. It's a picture of theistic evolution. It is in this section where the framework hypothesis is introduced. If this is a new term for you, check the show notes for a link to our other article, The Framework Hypothesis, Missionary Societies, and the Gospel. Bible Project is not pioneering anything new here. The framework hypothesis was unheard of until Dutch professor Ari Nordsee proposed it in 1924. 
he acknowledged that Genesis 1 teaches a concept of six creation days, or what can be described as a six literary days. He asserts that these are not days of history but a literary framework. The adage, if it's new, it's probably not true is apt here. This is an attempt to reconcile what the Bible says with what secular science claims. The problem here isn't so much that there is a supposed literary structure. The problem is that this specific literary structure is used to deny the historicity of the text. Framework advocates tend to claim that if it can be shown that there are thematic and literary structures in Genesis 1, then the chapter can be interpreted as poetry, and if it is poetry, it is not history. This supposedly allows scholars to explain away the apparent conflict between Genesis 1 and evolutionary Big Bang theory. Bible Project states that if Genesis 1 and 2 are not making scientific claims at all, and are therefore compatible with a wide range of scientific views, then Genesis becomes irrelevant to science. Objections can be waved away because the Bible is not a science textbook. This sounds good on the surface, but Bible Project's approach brings up major concerns about what interpretative methods are being used, about the clarity of Scripture, and about the accuracy of Scripture, hermeneutics, perspicuity, and inerrancy. This is reminiscent of Dr. John Walton's view of functional creation. The aforementioned quote is actually from a Bible Project podcast featuring him. So maybe you've watched the visual commentary and thought, so what? Why is this incompatible with a literal six-day interpretation? A breakdown of the concept as laid out in the video might help. Bible Project says there is a problem stated in Genesis 1-2 because there is no order and no inhabitants. God is said to fix this in a series of two three-day patterns. What it basically says is that the text in Genesis 1 and 2 can be put into a unique triad structure. Day 1 corresponds with Day 4, Day 2 corresponds with Day 5, and Day 3 corresponds with Day 6. Days 1, 2, and 3 are about God creating the world and universe we see today, while Days 4, 5, and 6 in Genesis 1 and 2 are about God filling the domains of the universe and the world. The framework hypothesis then concludes with the assumption that since this structure is present that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is poetic. And because it's poetic, it's not real history. So is there a literary triad structure in Genesis 1? How does the video compare to what the text says? Let's start with Genesis 1, 1 through 5. For day one, Bible Project disagrees with the translation that God created the heavens and the earth. Instead, they believe that verse one should be translated as skies and the land. In other words, they teach that Genesis 1-1 is merely a summary statement limited to the creation of the skies and land. But this is self-refuting and cannot be true because skies and land are not created until day two and three respectively. A mere skies and land summary, as we will see, is insufficient for what is about to unfold. The phrase heavens and earth is a term of totality, meaning all of creation or everything that God made. This is called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech where two opposites are used to refer to a whole. For example, if a store says it is open day and night, it means it is open all the time, including dawn and dusk. Or if one searched high and low, it means searched everywhere. Thus, God is creating his entire universe, including our planet. For example, Genesis 14, 19 and 22, 2 Kings 19, 15, and Psalm 121, 2. 
Exodus 20.11 also confirms this when it includes the sea and all that is in them, thus taking the merism of totality a step further. We can know that Genesis 1 refers to the creation of everything, and not just a summary statement of only skies and land, because Genesis 1.1 is alluded to in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. There, we are told that, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in 2 Peter 3.7 it says that, By the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 flows from verse 1 as it is now describing one of the created things, earth. Thus verse 1 must be a summary statement of God's creation of everything in the universe. It cannot be limited to just the creation of skies and land. Bible Project states that in verse 2 the land being wild and waste, or unordered and uninhabited, and the deep abyss are ways of declaring a pre-creation state, nothingness, non-reality, and non-existence. However, this would be a stretch from a straightforward reading. The text names the formless and void earth along with water that are present in Genesis 1-2. 2 Peter 3-5 affirms this. Therefore, the waters mentioned in Genesis 1-2 are part of God's creation on day 1. Jeremiah 4-23 also uses the same Hebrew phrase to say without form and void. It would be hard to see how this refers to non-existence when just like Genesis 1-2, the earth is present. No, it is describing an existing earth in an unformed and unfilled state, meaning no features and no inhabitants. Bible Project does not include verses 1 and 2 on day 1. They start day 1 with, And God said, and describe the light created as God's own glorious light. This is a bit misleading as the light was something that God created, while God himself is eternal and had no beginning. What is created would be the phenomenon of how his light interacts with his created universe in the physical laws he set up. Now let's move to Genesis 1, 6 through 8. Bible Project states that the waters above and below constituted the skies and the sea on the second day. Additionally, it is stated that in the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome. Bible Project errs again. While the waters above the expanse are completed on this day, and the expanse that lies between both bodies of water is named heaven, the waters below are not called seas until day three. Yet in the triad structure, the sea is placed on the second day. The idea of a solid dome effectively has Bible Project claiming that the author of Genesis is accommodating human error by using the language and cultural beliefs of the time. In practice, this would mean depending upon a fallible understanding of ancient pagan cultures and then imposing that as a hermeneutical framework on Scripture. This undermines the sufficiency, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. Furthermore, the idea of a solid dome has been heavily refuted in other places. See our show notes for several links to related articles for any of the points we're touching on. Moving on to Genesis 1, 9 through 13, covering day three, Bible Project names the creation of the land and a bonus act of plants. This bonus act is supposed to match what happens on day six to emphasize the triad structure. The Bible declares two acts that are good on day three, 
the creation of the land and seas, and then the creation of vegetation. Now in Genesis 1:14 through 19, Bible Project claims that God installs the lights as signs and symbols on day four in relation to the time aspect of day one. God did create the sun and the moon, day four, to rule over the day and night, day one. However, the heavens where the sun, moon, and stars are placed were not created until day two. This does not work with the triad structure of creating and filling. Interestingly, these astronomical bodies were also created to give light on the earth. While earth should be referenced as being created on day one, Bible Project has earth translated as land. Land is created on day three and therefore doesn't exist yet on day one. Next we have Genesis 1, 20 through 23, touching on day five. Bible Project shows this day as filling the realm of day two with creatures in the sky and sea. Genesis 1.22 says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Seas and land are created on day three, not day two. Additionally, the waters that were separated above and below the expanse on day two were created on day one. This is interesting given that the creation and naming of the waters happen over a period of three days. Now coming to the end of the chapter, we have Genesis 1:24 through 31, which describe day six. Bible Project says that the land creatures emerge out of the ground from day three. And then matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human or in Hebrew, Adam. The plants from day three are now given as abundant food. First notice that nothing created on day six fills the seas created on day three. Other mismatches for a triad structure are that Adam and Eve are given dominion over the creatures that are made on both day five and day six, and that plants created on day three are also given as food for the birds from day five. Comparing the literary triad structure with what the text says, one can conclude the triad structure is not even consistent with the text. It is an artificial construct that has been imposed upon Genesis 1 without regard to what the text actually says. Christians should be able to easily jettison this view. The specifics of each day do not fit into this nice package, so using this pattern to deny historicity is folly. Bible Project says, And so were completed the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Again, skies and land are too restrictive for the context of all that is created. See day one again about heavens and earth being a term of totality for all creation. Bible Project rightly shows that day seven does not contain the phrase, and there was evening and morning. It is then reasoned that this is because it has no end, unlike the other six days. By this reasoning, day seven has no beginning either since the phrase evening and morning mark the beginning and end of a day. Yet no sound theologian of scripture has ever proposed that the seventh day did not start. So why the inconsistent hermeneutics, applying it only to the end of the seventh day, but not the start of the day? Exodus 28 through 11 and Exodus 31, 15 through 17 gives a command that presupposes God operating within a 7, 24-hour time frame. Does God command people to work in six literal days because he worked in six literary figurative days? No other commands in scripture function this way. 
It is likely that Bible Project is showing that Day 7 is a literary pattern in Scripture similar to what we see in Hebrews 4. This is loosely referred to when they say that Genesis 1 is God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos, a place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. The seventh day is the goal of creation. It should be pointed out that the continual rest that we see from God in Hebrews 4 is one of salvation. What has no end is the rest that he offers to us. Bible Project shows that there are seven announcements of good for the days of creation. However, they strangely tag good to day seven and only very good for day six in the video, whereas the text states both good and very good for day six. Instead, day seven is blessed and made holy. Despite the problems, the video highlights some important aspects we can all take away as Christians. God is the one in control. We should reflect him as image bearers. We should be good stewards of his creation. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, and he wants fellowship with us. God's ideal was for us to rule and reign creation with him. God defines what is good, and God chooses what he blesses. While the framework hypothesis denies historicity, Bible Project is bringing out that there is more than just a chronology here, and that should be commended. God is revealing something about who he is to the reader. Positives as a ministry goes, their video overviews of each book of the Bible are genuinely helpful and can generally be taken at face value without having to dig too deep into theology. Also, many of the reviews show that Bible Project has gotten people excited about reading their Bibles again. Their eye on literary patterns and themes in the Bible has successfully achieved their mission statement of showing that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Let us remember that God's word will not return empty or void. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bud and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We'll take a look at more of the errors Bible Project teaches right after a short break. Many have asked Creation Ministries International for a teaching series on Genesis and creation science. Maybe you haven't heard about the one they have titled The Genesis Academy, a 12-part series based on the written commentary The Genesis Account. The Genesis Academy has teachers from four different countries delivering 12 lessons, each under 40 minutes long, and each has a free study guide. It includes hundreds of visuals in the in-depth analysis of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. The Genesis Academy is presented with students and adults in mind and would be ideal for study groups at your church or home. It covers questions like, who wrote Genesis and when? What does it mean? How does it underpin the gospel? What can we learn from the fall, flood, and babble? The Genesis Academy is available for streaming and in a DVD set right now at creation.com store. Regrettably, the bad vastly outweighs the good. We cannot recommend Bible Project as a ministry. If a ministry or teacher has a confused view of Genesis, you will likely find errors in other areas of their theology as well. Some things to consider. Based on a variety of blogs, podcasts, and videos, it seems Bible Project affirms that Scripture is a divine human book, that it was inspired, and that it is without error. 
However, they can only maintain this by redefining the historical evangelical definition of inerrancy and infallibility. In practice, Bible Project seems to have a low view of both doctrines. In the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy Article 12, there is a connection between historicity and inerrancy. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about Earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the Flood. Similarly, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Hermeneutics Article 14 states, We affirm that the biblical record of events, discourses, and sayings, though presented in a variety of appropriate literary forms, corresponds to historical fact. We deny that any event, discourse, or saying reported in Scripture was invented by the biblical writers or by the traditions they incorporated. There are similar statements in Article 18 of the CSBI and Articles 13, 19, and 22 of the CSBH. It would be fair to say that Bible Project is in agreement with Article 17 of the CSBI, but the loophole is they claim that Genesis is not making a historical statement. In fact, it is hard to distinguish from their teaching when history actually begins. There are two resources from Bible Project here that seem to suggest this strange notion that biblical characters or events can be historical, yet not what actually happened. Consider these Bible Project teachings. In a podcast on how to read the Bible, Bible Project teaches that when Genesis tells us about Abraham, it is not about a real person called Abraham. Rather, the Abraham of the Bible is just a literary representation of Abraham so that you know what happened, but more importantly, you understand the meaning of what happened. In a blog on the ascension of Jesus, Bible Project describes Jesus' ascension in Acts 1 as just imagery. The reader is not supposed to believe this is an eyewitness account of actual events. It states, Luke is not giving his readers video camera footage of what happened that day. Instead, he is purposefully using geographic and spatial relationship language of going up to convey transcendent meaning. This is confusing at best. Credit should be given where it is due, however. In the same podcast with Abraham, there is an understanding that the significance of certain events hangs on their historicity. If the first Adam is only literary or figurative, then on what basis is the last Adam not also literary or figurative? The New Testament writers thought of Adam as a historical figure. Where in the Bible do figurative events stop and real events start? How is it justified that Jesus is not lying when he says, but from the beginning in Mark 10, 6 through 9? God declared day six to be very good. There is no room for death and suffering in a very good creation. Theistic evolution is a very serious compromise to biblical truth as it logically puts death and suffering before the fall. A Bible teacher who puts a fossil record underneath the feet of Adam and Eve undermines the foundation of the gospel. Consider these quotes from Did God Create Over Billions of Years? A central part of the gospel is that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. See 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Death intruded into a perfect world because of sin, and it is so serious that Jesus' victory over death cannot be entirely manifested while there is a single believer in the grave. Are we expected to believe that something the Bible authors described as an enemy was used or overseen by God for millions of years and was called very good? 
A major part of the gospel is the hope we have in this resurrection and restoration of the creation to its original perfect state. The Bible is clear about the new heavens and earth as a place where there is no bloodshed, no suffering, and no sin. But how can this be called a restoration if such a state never existed? Here's a list of just a few high-profile apologists that hold to a mix of views that include God using evolution, belief in death before sin, denial of a historical Adam, denial of original sin, etc. N.T. Wright, John Walton, Biologos, Joshua Swamides, and Scott McKnight. Finally, let's look at some quotes from Bible Project and or co-founder Tim Mackey. Please check the references in the written article version of this podcast for your own study. This is to demonstrate that Bible Project's errant views are nothing new and that they have been answered and dealt with ad nauseum. We only recently discovered that the Earth is a globe spinning in space. In the ancient imagination, the land is disc-shaped, sometimes called the circle of the Earth. For this first quote, we find a refutation in Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah described the earth as circular. Tim also said, What keeps the land from just sinking into the waters? What keeps the ordered world in which humans live from descending into chaos and disorder? The land is kept from sinking into the waters below by the pillars of the earth. This is another ancient idea you'll find in the Bible. Here Tim is referencing the Flat Earth Theory. Please see our article refuting the Flat Earth and other nonsense in the show notes. So God's not creating a thing here. And as you work through the days in Genesis chapter 1, often God's not making or manufacturing anything. He's bringing, as John Walton says, function and order out of chaos. Our refutation of this is in the article Analyzing John Walton's Functional Creation View of Genesis 1, which is also available in the show notes. So in Genesis 1, you have a sequence of events where you have land, plants, animals. Humans are the pinnacle of creation in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, humans come first, and then they tend the grounds for agriculture, and then animals, and then man, and then female. So two distinct views and the author just plop both of them in front of us. So that's the first clue that a literal, like whatever you want to do with a literal reading. You just got a huge problem right there off the bat. Maybe the author is not trying to tell us about chronology. Maybe he's sitting two distinct statements about the world in front of us. So when it comes to the human origins, again, the Israelite author is engaging with his Babylonian neighbors and making a very radical claim. We refute this idea in the article, Genesis Contradictions, which again, you'll find a link to in the show notes. The Creation.com article podcast is brought to you by the studios of Creation Ministries International, USA. You'll find lots of interesting related content in the links and show notes. This episode's article was written by Chris Day. Be sure to listen to our other show, Creation.com Talk. Visit our events page to find a creationist giving a presentation in your local area. If you'd like to help us, become a monthly supporter at creation.com donate. If you want the latest noteworthy research and news, subscribe to Creation Magazine. From everyone at creation.com, thanks for listening. <laughs>